I'm Alex Green. Welcome to Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. That is the music of my guest today, The Paranoid Style. That's Elizabeth Nelson on vocals, and she'll be joining me today for a conversation. The Paranoid Style, you might be shouting to yourself or shouting uh, in a room full of people. Either way, you might be shouting that phrase because you recognize it. You recognize it from an essay from 1964 by Richard Hofstadter called The Paranoid Style. It was a political essay that turns out to be rather eerily on the mark considering the times that we live in. Hofstadter was a little freaked out about uh, radical right people, uh, you know, candidates of that sort, who uh, used a kind of paranoia to uh, appeal to people on an emotional level, which is basically a fear-based level, so people in their terror will vote for them. And because people scare easily, these candidates knew all you got to do is make weird statements, right? You make these sort of big blanket statements about Things in the world that uh, that seem really scary, but they're not grounded in any kind of fact at all. You know, things like, uh, squirrels are trying to take our guns away. Or, people who listen to music are, are secretly working for ISIS. Or, make America great again. Because <laughs> there's a faction of people out there who are making it less great. And we have to get them before they get us. Anyway, Hofstadter was so freaked out that these candidates were going to show up and start saying things that were conspiratorial and strange and paranoid. And people, because people are so easily led by fear, would vote for them. And, as you can see, he was right on the money. Because take a look at the White House now. Paranoid style playbook, it's really simple. Create a little anxiety and people will follow you because they think that you've identified the source of that anxiety and you will eradicate it. It's as simple as that. You should read the essay. It's really good. I don't want to give you homework, but uh, it's a really important essay, and you should check it out. But guess what? We're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the paranoid style, the band. Okay? Let me tell you a little bit about these guys. They're great. They're from Washington, D.C. They've been around since 2012. They're uh, on Bar None Records, which is home to everyone from Ezra Furman to Hotel Lights to uh, The Feelies. They might be Giants, Alex Chilton. Uh, you get the idea. Simply put, the Paranoid Style are a great band. They put a bunch of EPs out, and then uh, they put a record out last year called Rolling Disclosure, which is fantastic. A few weeks ago, their new EP, Underworld USA, came out. I love this band. They're like a garage rock band. They're pop. They're punk. They're a little bit new wave. Uh, and I love their songs. So they're literate. They're smart. They're melodic. They're emotional, they're satirical, they're hilarious, they're moving. And the fact is that Elizabeth Nelson is one of the most perceptive 
uh, writers about contemporary society. She really gets it, and she's not afraid to rail against the things that she sees. The paranoid style, they kind of remind me of Naomi Klein fronting the attractions. Pretend the attractions had never met that Elvis Costello guy, and that's what the paranoid styles sound like. Their songs, whip-smart and catchy as hell. Okay? All right, you're going to love this band, and you're going to love Elizabeth Nelson. She has charisma to burn. We spoke the night we were setting our clocks back for daylight savings time, so that was on our mind, among other things. Enjoy our conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. It's funny because we actually thought that it started, like, last week. Um, And so, like, the sun has been setting earlier here, and so... Um, I had actually thought that we had already fallen back. And um, so I'd already been depressed for a week. And now I'm just realizing that it's only going to get darker. Uh, and, and so I've been laboring under the solution for, for a week already. Yeah, you're ahead of us on your depression or you're, it'll be double the depression once it actually happens. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm totally not sure, but, but either way, I was like, wait, we didn't fall back last week? Okay. So yeah, I'm waiting for the sun to set at 3 p.m. and just really, really falling into a black hole. Um, but you know. <laughs> well, I gotta tell you, I'm crazy about your band. I love you guys. Um, Thank you. And I, 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 I love what you're doing. I love the sound. I love the feel of the aesthetic. Uh, and I, I love what's happening with your band. You're one of the most exciting bands I've come across in a long time. Um, wow. Thank you I so know. much for saying that. You're welcome. Well, thank you for being a great band. Um, t- tell me a little bit about how the band got together, because you've been around since 2012. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I think if you want to put like a formal timestamp on it, 2012 is probably the year that we um, – put together our first like set of formal recordings um you know like so many things it was like you know kind of coming out of a bunch of different um like we like I had played in some bands and Timothy had played in some bands previously and we decided we want to do a band together um and then um we got Bruce involved and um you know, we were kind of working with a constellation of different dudes and, um, you know, made some recordings with them. Um, but, you know, it, it just sort of, it felt really natural. Like, yeah, you know, um, Timothy and I being married helped a lot because we would just sort of, um, you know, think about songs and jam songs together. And, uh, and so when it, came to pass that we had a collection of songs that were paranoid style songs. It, it felt completely natural to put it together, but it wasn't like, you know, one day I just woke up and I was like, Oh, you know, we should, we should just do this band and it's going to be the paranoid style. It, it was, it really sort of, you know, developed more sort of naturally and organically from a bunch of different streams. What were the bands like that you were in before paranoid style? Let's see. Um, I played in like a cool rock group uh, with a, a woman uh, songwriter, singer-songwriter named Bethel Werna, and her band was called Bird of Youth. Um, and I played accordion for her. Um, and uh, let's see. I played in a Latin American dance band. I played in a square dance band. Um, so I was kind of all over the place. Like, I, you know, I had a lot of different influences. Um 
I have a classical piano background, so anytime that there was like a keyboard instrument that was involved, um, I would try and play that. And and so, um, but I think the you know, I was very very accustomed to sort of playing keyboards and and rock band kind of stuff um, in that regard. Did you like the idea of? you know, becoming the, the, the person who is in charge in terms of like, not in charge, but being like the front, the front person uh, of a band, was that a natural progression for you? Did you, did you sort of like that transition? Yeah. You know, I dug it. I have a performance background, so it wasn't like too surprising to me to fill that role. And maybe I'm a little bit of a control freak too. So perhaps I, I dug it on a more subconscious level. Um, you know, I, I had things I wanted to say and um, I felt confident um, saying them and I wanted to be the person saying them and, and I wanted to, to, you know, front the band and, and I was, you know, very, very happy to pick up that mantle. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, maybe that makes me a complete uh, egotist or something, but no, I, I, I wanted to do it. You know, I was, I was psyched to do it. And as I say, I, these were the words that I wanted to say, and I, I couldn't imagine anybody else doing it. Nobody else wanted to either, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sort of like being, you know, being the, the, the front person of a band is sort of like, uh, it can be a demanding thing. You have to sort of be up for the, up for the task and you seem more than up for it. You seem like you really are, it's quite a natural fit for you. Oh, I, well, I appreciate you saying that. Um, you know, I, I enjoy doing it. It's it's really fun, obviously. Um, you know, uh, it, you kind of have to be the quarterback. And so if things go well, you get a lot of the credit. If it goes really poorly, you have to, you know, take a lot of the blame. So it kind of cuts both ways. Um, and so when I, you know, was just um, doing side person work, it was a lot easier to um, – not have to worry about, you know, how great a show would go. Obviously I would feel badly if it went poorly for somebody else, but you know, um, when you're actually up there, you know, doing the front person stuff, um, it's a little bit heavier, but as I say, like I, I actually enjoy it and I enjoy doing that kind of quarterbacking and and being the organizer and, and being the person who, who is, um, trying to figure out, you know, even just like the smallest of logistical details. Like I, I, I live to plan. So, um, you know, I, I even dig like the, the more boring aspects of it. And there are plenty of boring aspects of it. What you mentioned your performance background. Did you now did you grow up in DC? No, I'm from Long Island. You're from Long Island and your performance stuff was based on you were doing piano as as a, a youngster growing up. Mm-hmm. And were you also yep, I, acting as well or or just music? Yes. I know I um I went to uh like a, a theater arts camp um on Long Island uh for a good number of years of my life. Um and I, I did theater there and, and had drama classes and any like sort of performing art that you could like append the word geek to, that was like my domain with theater geek, band geek jazz band geek, you know, musical theater geek. I, I, I did all of that. I went and did a summer stock thing in New Hampshire for a summer. Um, so I, 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 you know, I wanted to be on stage, um, even though I wasn't necessarily very good at lots of things, um, dancing being uh, the first and foremost that comes to mind. I'm, I'm absolutely terrible at that. 
<laughs> we, we're all terrible at it. We just move around and stuff. I, I guess so. I mean, that's like the weirdest thing to be up on stage, you know, during an instrumental break and try to figure out what exactly to do next. Um, and, and I'm still kind of getting beyond that. And I hate when people take videos of me because I'm like, wow, that just looks so sad. But, uh, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you're hard. To, yeah, I think you. I think you're a great dancer. And I'll tell you, this is why Liam Gallagher keeps his hands behind his back. I think when he sings, he still hasn't figured it out. Like, what do I do? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's such a conundrum. And you know, it's like you, you can grab the mic stand, or you know, you can sort of wave your hands in the air. A lot of people go for like the group clapping thing. That to me feels a little too personally humiliating. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I, I assume I'll get it figured out eventually, but that is that is definitely something that I confront every time I get on stage. I feel like Bob Seger did a lot of the clapping. I, I remember Bob Seger always doing uh, clapping between between uh, in little moments in the song. You know, I haven't watched enough of his live video performances. Um, I, I probably should, and I mean, I, I do try to do that because I, I do try to see what what what. Um, what singers will do. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess if it's good enough for Seeger, I should probably give it a go. I do it sometimes. I mean, you, you can't help it sometimes, but. My Bob Seeger thing might be totally wrong. I just, every time I think of him, I, for whatever <laughs> reason, he's always, in my mind, Bob Seeger is always clapping. I could be totally wrong. So, like, on a song like Main Street, or would it be more like a banger, like Hollywood Nights? I think it's like Hollywood Nights, but in my brain, it's just every it's night moves too. I mean, and it's that can't be true. I think, <laughs> I think something's wrong with with me because I don't think that's really what he did. But um, I always try to think about this now. That could be really, really, really perverted. I mean, how strange would it be if he was clapping during Main Street or or night moves? <laughs> I think you just got a YouTube Bob Seger clapping, and it'll be every video. <laughs> okay. I think, I, I, yeah, I'm going to do that. When we hang up the phone, I'm going to just watch Bob Seger videos all night and I'll make a list for you of ones where he's in a live performance and he's clapping. Right. And you're going to go you're going to go either well, Alex was very perceptive or Alex was completely <laughs> insane. It's one, it's one or the other. It's one or the other. Um, tell me about the aesthetic of the Paranoid Style, because I, I love I feel like that we like the same books. I feel like we like uh -huh. the same music. I feel like, you know, there's a sort of pulp, uh, like a Raymond Chandler, Jim Harrison kind of element to the, the aesthetic. And also there's a kind of vintage um, element as well. And then there's a kind of punk rock um, side to it. I feel like, so tell me about for you, what informed you, um, you know, in terms of your favorite authors, your favorite bands, and how did that stuff come together to sort of, um, you know, build this kind of aesthetic that you have? Um, okay, but, this is a big question, um, and there's a lot to it. Um, so, you know, obviously, I, I, I mean, I'm a huge consumer of music, um, and, you know, so a lot of, like, the, the threads that you can pull, you know, if it's, like, the punk stuff, you know, I am deeply influenced by The Clash and, you know, a lot of that sort of British like punk new wave from the seventies was really, really um, important to me. It's really important to me. Um, the first band I think that I ever kind of really fell in love with um, is um, they might be giants who um, are like catchy, but subversive. 
and can get the job done in a two minute song. Um, and I, I, they really, really influenced me heavily, even though we don't sound anything like them. Um, and, you know, as far as like the noir stuff and, and Chandler and everything, I mean, that's just kind of where I live. I mean, I love the films of that era. Um, obviously, um, I've read a lot of Chandler. Um, we just have those books kind of laying around, which are fun to just pick up. And, you know, he's, he's like such a master of, you know, like a, what a concise like one liner should be. And um, I just love the way he writes characters and obviously the stories are gripping. Um, so it all kind of, you know, you can bundle it up into this really nice package. And I, I mean, you know, um, our guitarist Bruce bring, brings a lot of the nice garage elements to it. Um, and uh, he doesn't like the clash, but um, you know, uh, he, he does like a lot of the sort of, like simple kind of three chord stuff, which, you know, helps keep us, you know, more grounded and whatnot. So um, I'm trying to think, how else can I answer your question? Uh, I have, to, I mean, just tons and tons of influences. I, you know, um, I consumed music just sort of rapaciously um, as, as a kid and, and continue to do so to this day. So um, it all kind of gets thrown in there. Were you were you the kind of person where you're like, okay, I'm done I'm done with the record store, now to the bookstore? <laughs> oh, you mean like when I'm shopping or, yeah. or uh Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um in in fact where I grew up on Long Island was this incredibly small town. Um and there was a record store almost directly across the street from the bookstore. And so when we would go and hang out, um, if we had, you know, extra money or whatever, that was where it would go. It'd either go to the record store or the bookstore. Um and uh, I've worked in record stores and I've never worked at the bookstore, but I did work at the library. So, um, you know, again, it just kinda all hits me where I live, like that's that's how I like to spend my time is either listening to music or reading books. i
it's funny, you know, with They Might Be Giants uh, were a and are a bar none band, and now you're a bar yeah. none band. Um, did you feel a kind of there must have been a real sense of pride in ending up on their label? Oh my gosh, it's it's like amazing to me that I get to be on bar none because it, as I say, you know, the, the first band that I, I really, really fell in love with was they might be giants. And, you know, um, I, I got into them probably when I was like 13 or 14. And, and so, um, I remember I bought Lincoln and I bought the pink album, both on cassette on the same day at the record store. And I went home and I played them and then you could like, um, you know, write letters to the label and to the band. And that was all in their liner notes. This was before the internet. And I did both. And like, you know, I got on the barn on mailing list and I got all their samplers and I got just really, really super invested in all of their artists. So I felt like I knew exactly what a barn on band should sound like. And I was like, the paranoid style is a barn on band. So it made perfect sense to me. And it only took a little bit of convincing uh, to Glenn Morrow that they were a barn on band. And I was, I was just absolutely psyched. And yeah, it's, it's a huge honor to be a part of that tradition. And it's not just, they might be giants. It's the feelies. It's Yola Tango. It's the DBs who play on Underworld USA and played on our other record, Rockwell Just Can't Recall. I mean, it's just super cool to have um, that as my label. I got into the Mappy Giants when I, my senior year of high school, which would have been like 87, 88. And I got into okay. like, don't, don't let start was my, was my entry point. And yeah. those are the days where a record label, you knew the aesthetic. So if you were in the store yeah. and you saw there was a band and it was out on bar none, you could feel safe that you could buy that album and it wasn't going to mislead you because you knew the aesthetic of the label. Yeah. So yeah, right, I mean, totally. Like, there were labels like that. Like I think Slash Records was like that. I think that SST and I think Twin Tone and I think Bar None um, and to a degree IRS Records were all sort of like that. And that doesn't mm-hmm. totally exist anymore. But if you but with Bar None, it still does. And so um, I love that you just said that because I feel like with Bar None, all the bands that are on there sound like Bar None bands. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're sort of they're quirky and weird and cool and they have guitars and I mean, you know, they, they have a few digressions here and there, but you know, true one, I would say that, yeah. I mean, it's like if I was at the record store and I was just looking to buy anything and I saw that there was a new barn on release, I'd pick it up because I knew that there probably would be at least, you know, one to five songs on there that I could relate to. Um, and I, yeah, I do think that, think that, um, Glenn has an aesthetic direction um, that I, I agree with you. I mean, it doesn't really exist. You know, I, I, there was a period of time where Matador couldn't really get anything wrong for right. me. Um, uh, and, and Merge, I think, is still doing a lot of really, really good work. Um, yeah. But by and large, yeah, I, I don't, I guess hardly art is, is interesting to me as well. Um, they seem to have an aesthetic direction that, that seems coherent. And, uh, and, and I feel that way about bar none. And, uh, and I, as I say, it's like, it's a huge point of pride for me to, to get to be on that label. Yeah. I mean, I remember like Otis Ball and the chains and I remember, uh, you mm-hmm. know, the first pretty Johnston record and I went, well, wow, bar none, really, there's a, you know, there's a definitely a cohesion to the bands they signed, you know, even a label like SST, they had, you know, the descendants, Minutemen, Meat Puppets, Husker Du, and you're like, I, this label is never going to let me down. So even when they did a little bit, you forgave them because those albums were yeah. so great. Um, yeah. 
you know, bar none has been very, very consistent. And, and I, I love that you guys are on there. Um, how okay. it's so cool. How did you get Peter um, from the DBs? Uh, how did you get that guy to play with your band? Okay. So I, I just told this story the other day when we were on the radio at um, WSMU. Um, so our guitarist, Bruce Bennett, is, is um, well, I guess was and is a, like a big part of that Hoboken scene that was sort of around in the 80s and the 90s. Um, so he knew, I guess, all of the members of the DBs, um, more or less. But he was very, very good friends with Will Rigby, who is the drummer for the DBs. And um, Will is down in... Um, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where we record music. And we were putting together a band for an EP that we did, um, 2015, uh, was the rock and roll just can't recall record. And we needed a drummer. Um, and Bruce said, well, you know, I know Will Ray B. I can ask him if he wants to do it. And Will, I guess was not busy enough to come and spend a weekend in the studio with us. And so, and he was fantastic. Um, he's one of my favorite drummers and that record sounds so good to me in large part because of his drumming. But fast forward to like, I think it was 2016 and um, I was working in a record store and um, Peter Holzapple came in and I was like, Oh my God, it's Peter Holzapple. And I don't know why, maybe because I'm completely obsessed with myself or whatever, but I had a promo of the rock and roll just can't recall record with me. And um, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go up and I'm going to give Peter Holzapple this record. So I went up to him and I said, hey, Peter, you know, um, I'm a huge fan. Will Rigby, your friend, played on our record. I would love to give you a copy of it. And he really, really graciously accepted it. And, um, you know, he told me that, um, you know, he went and he put it on the CD player in his car and he just loved what he heard. And so, you know, um, we started up a correspondence, we became friends, um, you know, we hang out occasionally. And when it came time to do the record, I asked him if he wanted to do it. And he knows Bruce, our guitarist, and he knows Timothy, obviously. And he was like, yeah, totally. I want to, I want to be a part of it. And um, brought him into the studio and he was sincerely one of the greatest people to ever work with uh, as a musician and as a collaborator. I mean, he just brought so, so much and he was so easy to work with. And I, I'm, I was so honored that he wanted to be a part of it. And, and I think that, uh, you know, his contributions stand out as, as one of the best parts of, of the new record. I would be so nervous to be around because I mean, the, like this album, uh, you know, is like one of my all time favorites. And then his work with mm -hmm. REM, I mean, he's, you know, he's really a, quite a legendary guy. Were you a little bit yeah. nervous to, to do the work with him? You know, um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, he's a, he's a real professional, obviously. Um, he's so laid back and he's so nice, um, that, you know, like, when I, when like working with Will is a little bit different and um, you like, cause Will's a little bit like drier in terms of his sense of humor. Like Peter is just so friendly and he's so warm and so open. And um, like, 
I, yeah, I mean, obviously, I stand in awe of his abilities, but I think there's a reason why, like, he's such a good dude in the studio and, like, you know, he gets to work with, like, Hootie now. And, you know, people just want to be around him and want to work with him because he makes it easy to work and he brings out your best performances. So even though it was like, oh, my God, that's Peter Holzapel and, he, you know, he's just, you know, playing the piano, he's just kind of like, you know, a good friend, too. And, you know, he's just... I, I mean, if you, 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 I hope that you get the chance to meet him. Um, you know, he's actually, I think, touring his solo stuff right now. So maybe he'll get out west and, and you can hook up with him because he is so fun and nice and interesting and warm. And, and I just can't even, like, enthuse enough about him because I, it was such, such a pleasure. Like, it was just so easy. Tell me, I know you've probably answered this question a million times, but I, I think it's interesting to know. Can you talk a little bit about where the name of the band came from? I know it's from an essay. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell people a little bit about what that's about? Sure. Um, so my understanding of it um, is that it's it's the uh, title of an article um, that I believe was written Harper's in 1964 um, called The Paranoid Style in American Politics, and it's by a historian and political scientist um, named Richard Hofstetter. And um, he, I, my timeline might be a little bit off here, but I believe that he wrote it right around the time that um, Goldwater received the Republican presidential nomination. And he was basically trying to understand and explain a sort of drift towards really, really far right wing conspiratorial thinking. And this was kind of all um, the result of this sort of extreme fear of communism that I, I think, you know, um, was very real for a lot of people. Um, but he had grounded it in a sort of historicity and an understanding of, you know, past movements of, of similar uh, paranoia and, and conspiratorially minded folks um, and getting, uh, you know, very, very excited about potentially nothing. Um, this article has been floating around for a really long time. It was republished um, in Harper's to celebrate an anniversary, which was when I read it. Um, and you know, I, it felt prescient at the time. And this was way before Trump, um, because this was like around like the Obama birther stuff. And, uh -huh. um, it was, you know, it, it just, it was cool too. Like, you know, the idea of, of paranoid style, um, you know, I obviously, um, we're not right wing or conspiratorially minded, but I just I love that idea of of paranoid style and thinking about it in terms of what it connoted as a political thing and also as just like an American fashion type of thing, um, you know. And I needed a name for the band, uh, and I thought, well, you know, we are writing about, um, you know, the issues of American politics and. It just it it felt cool to me and 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 it seemed to fit and I you know I said Timothy I, I think that's the name of the band and he was like yeah okay you know what I think you're right and it just stuck and and I'm so glad for it and as I say you know it was it was prescient at the time it was published and it feels all too relevant today doesn't it I know and you and the the best ways to lead people are through paranoia and fear 
right? Like it's mm-hmm. like you know the paranoid side. The, the, so the other side of that is like the shock doctrine, right? It's sort of like the way that you can sort of corral people through paranoia or through them being terrified uh, is a great yeah. way to sort of get mass movements to follow you. Um, yes. Very prescient indeed. In a in a scary yeah, way. <laughs> it, it's terrifying, and and I mean, I'm amazed that mass movements haven't followed the band uh, similarly, uh, because I thought if we went with that name, that we would certainly just capture the zeitgeist. But alas, uh, you know, <laughs> I know we have I, not gotten there yet. Well, and that be, that makes me wonder also. Like, for example, my plan with my radio show is to record as many as I can and reach as many people as I can. That's the extent of my planning. Um, what is the plan with the band? Like, do you think in terms of in a year, in five years, in ten years, or do you just sort of go day by day? Like, I've always been really curious how bands, and everyone's different, but like how you how you approach that and how you think about the future. Um, you know, it's it's funny. I mean. Like we, I think we think about it in terms of like from record to record, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that you've probably interviewed enough musicians at this point to know that, you know, doing an independent rock band is not like a surefire way to bankroll your future. Um, so, you know, we all have day jobs and we all have lives and and spouses and, and things that we actually genuinely have to worry about as apart from just, you know, rocking the masses um but you know and and we don't play out either that much so it's not like we're a get in the van kind of band and go out there and just you know penetrate iowa city you know and and really you know get the message across we play occasionally but you know um we we sort of pride ourselves on our rear public appearances
know, I love writing and um, that's something that I'm doing constantly. And so we, if we, if I'm really putting out like the, you know, the planning aspect of it, you know, it's always like, well, let's do an EP in 2017. And then, you know, 2018, maybe we'll do like a split seven inch and then we'll do a a full record, you know, at the end of the year. Um, But, you know, if I thought to myself, man, and, you know, like, you know, in a sort of like Stalin-esque kind of five-year plan kind of way, um, I would assume that we'd probably just put out more records and hopefully, you know, maybe generate a few more fans here and there. But um, there's no real delusions of grandeur. Like, you know, my first, uh, you know, Grammy will be in 2020 and I'll get, you know, my big licensing deal or what. I, I mean, it's impossible to, to really think that way. Um, I admire people that do, but it's just not, not for me. I mean, I, I prefer to be a little bit more grounded and just think like, let's try and get the record out guys. And, you know, maybe we'll play a show around it. It's funny, you know, when I, I interviewed the, the first guy I interviewed, I was 16 years old. And I interviewed this band called Slovenly and they were an SST band. Uh-huh. And oh, I was cool. doing high school radio at the time, and we scheduled the interview, and they said, we can come in uh, after work. And I remember thinking, like, after work? Because at the time, I thought if you wrote a book or if you were in a band, you made a ton of money, <laughs> which is not true. Um, yeah. you know, these, these guys all had day jobs. They came in after their day jobs. So it was a really weird thing for me as a teenager to get my head around the idea that if you were in a band, that didn't necessarily mean you, you, know, you didn't worry about bills. So, you know, these people have jobs. So I wonder, do the people at your work, do they know of you, uh, if, of your, of your, you know, your secret band life? Do they know about that? And is, is that a strange thing to be carrying around with you? Or is that a great audience to sort of, you know, crowdsource to come to your shows? You know, I, I mean, it's sort of funny because I, I feel like, you know, I, I'm the same way as you are. Like, I felt like if you had like a, a record out or a CD, like you obviously must have a guitar-shaped swimming pool right, in your backyard. Right. I always thought that. Um, yeah. Yes. And and so like when it, it it became like increasingly obvious that it was like, oh no no no, you know, like that dude drives a school bus, and you know that guy works at a coffee shop. Like, um, it, it, you know, it was a little sad, but you know, it was a little grounding too. Um. It, it's funny because doing the band, you know, it, it's intriguing for people, I think. So I think at the end of the day, it's a value add to the profile. And um, my, um, my like supervisor, I, I guess, um, or at least the person who I sort of directly um, report to is you know sort of a friend of mine he's very very interested in music and he's like a really really good bassist and so we talk about music all the time um and he's very interested in doing bands um but i i do feel like sometimes like when people see like that you're getting some sort of attention or that you have a record out on a label they're like wow it's it's just so great to see that you're so successful doing music and it's like it, it, I mean, it is cool and it's nice to get acknowledged like that, but I, I do sort of wonder if they labor under this delusion that like, you know, the same thing that you and I thought, like when, when, you know, whatever band it, they're on SST, they must be, you know, raking in millions. Um, but I, I think generally, you know, my colleagues, they, they think it's exciting and they think it's cool and I don't have to keep it a secret and I'm not ashamed of, of being in a band and I'm not ashamed of having a day job. I, I mean, I think it's all important. I write 
about the concerns of working people, and it's sort of an honor to be a person who works, and, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change that. I, I think it's really important. It's funny because I, I teach college. That's my day job, uh-huh. and uh, oh. and I sometimes I feel the need to not mention my radio my, my radio side of things too because I I feel like um it's it sort of I don't know what it is maybe it's a weird it's a weird thing on my part but it feels like the two worlds if they if they converge that one sort of takes power away from the other which I know is not true but I have this sort of fear that someone well he's a successful radio guy he doesn't need this college job <laughs> which is totally not true but I feel like people exactly. make these leaps you know um it's funny you mentioned that. No, I, I mean, I, I struggle with that, too, because as I say, I feel like people are like, well, well you know, you got the successful man. Like, you, you know, you must be just living the dream. Um, and, and so, you know, you, you really don't need me to, you know, pay that check that is delinquent right now. And, I, you know, it's interesting, um, you know, to take us a little bit off topic, if that's OK, um, or it's sort of on topic, I guess. But, um, you know, I do some music criticism. And I feel like people can't reconcile this. Like, how can you play in a band and also be a critic? And to me, it feels like the most natural of pairings. But I feel like for a lot of people, like, they just can't seem to reconcile in their heads that, like, a person could possibly play in a popular band and then also write rock criticism, even though, like, it's been done since time immemorial. And oftentimes the best critics are also really, really good musicians. And I think they work hand in hand together. But I feel like I've gotten so much pushback um, from, you know, trying to either, like, pitch an article that's a, you know, critique of music or, you know, trying to do a band and get coverage from a publication it's really really difficult and i and i never understood that and i mean i I think that you know if i explain it to people they're like oh yeah it makes complete sense to me but i feel like that's one where people have had a really hard time with that why do you think that breaks people's brains so much that if you like you're right it makes sense that a musician would be the most natural music critic i'm a music critic but i've never played an instrument in my life i'm just an enormous mm-hmm. music fan um but it makes more sense for a musician they can be a much more discerning um you know technical listener where do you think that that the rub is why do you think people have such a hard time getting their head around that because it makes perfect sense to me you know i <laughs> I, I've thought about it, and I, I'm, it's never really clear to me. I, I mean, I I sometimes like to just think that, you know, like like music critics, you know, think that you, you, you can't possibly play in a band because, you know, then you, you lose some sort of objective edge or something, um, or, or maybe it's just like, you know, the best music critics are, are failed musicians or something. I, I don't, I, I have no idea. And I, as I say, I think, I, I think that it's, there are certainly lots of people who have given me lots of opportunities to write criticism and don't have a problem with the fact that we have an active band, but I feel like um, doing an active band and being a critic at the same time often feels like they're acting in like oppositional forces or something um although it's like some of my favorite critics are great musicians and some of my favorite critics are you know not musicians at all so i think it's really possible to exist in all those roles i you know dude i have no idea i have no idea why to hang up well you know in terms of like sports casting up until recently maybe the last 10 or 15 years all of the sportscasters were people who looked like they couldn't make the JV team of whatever sport they're broadcasting. They were all, they didn't look like they were athletes and they had somehow more credibility. Now ex-athletes have sort of taken over that 
that uh, you yeah. know that sort of field. But it was kind of like that, right? Well, yeah, I mean that's 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 a really interesting analog, and um, you know I, I, I like sports and I like watching sports, and, and some of you know our former you know athletic stars are incredible broadcasters, yes. and some of them are absolutely terrible at it. <laughs> yes, um, you get both. You're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> And it's exciting to see those fault lines. Like it's just like a rod's really good at, you know, at, at, at being a broadcaster and he seemed like a total dick on the field, but you know, um, you know, and then like, I guess like, I, I think it was like Joe Montana was, I think it was Joe Montana was like absolutely terrible at it. I well, mean, and, and so, yeah. Or, or was he good? I can't remember. Oh, he was terrible. He was terrible. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I mean, obviously I think, you know, some people who do bands, you know, are, are, great intellectual thinkers about music like um you know um my friend and who's given me some opportunities sean nelson no relation um is with um you know the front man for harvey danger and he's a beautiful singer and he's a really really incredible writer um and he's like the editor uh the arts editor for the stranger now and his some of his critiques are so so great and and i mean but then I, I I don't know you know if you asked like Izzy Stradlin is he still alive um, yeah, to write alive. something I you know <laughs> <laughs> I mean he might not be able to to get the job done at the end of the day so I, I guess it really just comes down to you know what what your particular dispositions are um, but but yeah I mean just getting back to like being a working person who wants to work and who wants to contribute to the culture in a lot of different ways like the fact that people can't reconcile like that oh she's a music critic but you know she also plays in this really you know kind of marginally successful band um it blows my mind like that's the one that like I've never ever really been able to figure out yeah, it, it's funny, by the way, that you mentioned Harvey Danger. I'm a huge fan, and, and Sean's pieces are great. But you guys actually kind of remind me there's the, the wildness of Harvey Danger. Um, you guys would be on a, would be a great bill to have you guys play together, but there's a lot of similarities between your, your two bands, I think. I, I totally agree. I mean, I'm a huge fan, um, and I think he's an enormous talent, and they're super cool. I mean, like just the other day, we saw the that huge video that they had on MTV, and it, you know, it didn't even really look like anything else at the time. I mean, it was just they were so like smart and out there and and cool, and um, you know, as I say, I, I think Sean's got an expansive mind, and um, clearly a lot going on in there, and uh, and even like to hear him sort of reflect on that period of his career where they like sort of blew up overnight around this one song that didn't necessarily reflect their entire oeuvre is fascinating. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, if, if, uh, Sean, if you're listening, uh, let's put together something out in Seattle. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, we're available. And if we can get you on the West coast, we can, you can come down to San Francisco and see me. Um, yeah. The, you know, it's funny because I think like that's that was flagpole sitter, right? That was the Harvey Danger. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because you guys and I was going to ask you about this. You do a really great job of balancing like some of your songs are so funny and so smart and cynical. And then you have others that are really quite wrenching and really moving. Um, and I think Harvey Danger is is in many ways the same way. How do you feel about that? That balance between I get can we just go with the darkness and the light? Cause I don't know what else to call it. But um, there's a kind uh-huh. of tragedy and comedy they're on the same mask right they're on the same or not the same mask but they're on the same 
whatever the thing is that holds those two masks together. Um, but they're part of the same thing. So how do you keep those two together? And, and do you, are you conscious of that? Um, in as much as I'm conscious of anything, um, I suppose, you know, like, I, you know, I often get criticized for being a little too cynical. Um, so I appreciate the fact that you, you, you know, spent the time with the lyrics to understand that there, there's a lot of, of, uh, of sadness and things that I, I felt were really moving. Um, you know, um, that I, I, you know, I, it's hard for me to talk about myself in terms of, of, you know, giving myself praise for lyrical content, but, um, y- you know, I think it's very possible to, um, you know, be funny and be cynical and be a pointed critic of the culture or whatever it is that we're trying to do in one song. Um, and then also be able to write something that is, you know, painful and moving, um, you know, and this is something that I think they might be giants does really well too. You know, they are, clearly very cerebral and i i think they get dinged for you know oh they're just cold and nerds or whatever but i mean if you listen to just the bridge on um or uh they'll need a crane it's one of the most painful painful things i have ever heard i agree this is a long i mean so i i think i think the bus can make a lot of stops uh, and, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, if you're, if you're a smart and thinking person with a heart, it, it can, it can happen. What, what are you most cynical about? Do you think, uh, what are the things that, that drive you insane that make you cynical? What are the things that you see that you rail against? Um, well, you know, economic inequality, um, boring music, uh, Gosh, I, you know, I don't know. The, the the cultural climate currently feels really, really insane to me. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of fun to uh, to wake up every morning in America at this point. Um, although I, I I don't feel like I have a critique to level against Trump or anything like that. I'm just trying to figure out how it is that fascists get elected. Um, I know. And, um, (laughs) you know, I I mean, there's a lot to be angry about. And I I mean, you know, trying to be like a woman and a songwriter and, and, you know, get paid equal wages or, and there's, there's, there's plenty of things to be annoyed about. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily know that I'm railing about that in song, um, but I, I, you know, I, I probably just come with a lot of baggage or something. I do find a lot of your lyrics very moving, and I find that there's, you know, that sort of like the outer shell of cynicism, which is really fun and and um, and dark and delicious uh, and devilish, and then there's that sort of that we'll call it the gooey center. Um, but there is a kind of there's a real vulnerability also in in the songs and how you balance that is it's remarkable to me. I, I, I love how you do that. Well, I, I appreciate it. And, and again, I mean, you know, and we, we just, you know, we try to make it catchy for sure. As I say, like, you know, they might be giants taught me that you can write a very, very subversive song that can also be catchy. I think that might be something that, you know, people aren't understanding with paranoid socks. It's loud. And, you know, 
oh, this girl's just screaming at me. And, you know, I wish the teacher would shut up. Um, there's a lot of words and there's a lot of lyrics and I understand it's a lot to metabolize and, you know, I'm not going to change that. And so it's really okay. I'm fine. But, um, you know, I appreciate that, that you, that you say that because I do feel like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we're saying that's, you know, that's painful and, and, and vulnerable and, you know, um, and, and we try to render that in a way that maybe it's too protective, but, um, I, I, you know, it's something that we strive for and, and, you know, maybe at some point, you know, we'll, we'll strip it back completely and, and make our most, you know, naked and, and vulnerable record. But I, I can't, I can't predict that that's going to happen because there's just, it's, it's not interesting to me, um, at this point, you know, maybe, maybe I'll change that, but, you know, right now it feels like we're, we have so much fighting to do and we have to keep fighting. So it has to be loud and it has to be catchy. And, um, I mean, that's what I want to listen to at least. Well, I love your band so much, and my only request is that you continue fighting. All right, and yes, I, I, that's all we have to do is just keep faith and keep fighting. That's what Billy Bragg says, and that's what I do every day when I wake up, even when I'm depressed about daylight savings. So I'm going to keep doing it, and I'm glad that you are too. fun, right? I love talking to her. She's so cool. She's smart. She's funny. She's charming. She's witty. She's clever. Uh, She's the best. 
and I'm crazy about her band. Now, if you want to learn a little more about the Paranoid Style, it's very easy. Just go to barnun.com. That's bar-nun.com. Hit artists, and there is the Paranoid Style right there. And uh, you'll learn everything you need to know about that band in uh, 47 seconds, and then you'll be hooked for life. Okay? Do that. It's worth your time. Well, you heard them. They're great. Uh, okay, now, listen. You guys, thank you so much for your support of this program. Uh, we are uh, just starting off, and I think we're starting off very strong. So I appreciate your support. I appreciate all the uh, people you want me to interview. That's quite a list you've sent me. Everyone from Rihanna to uh, Rihanna. So I'll do my best to get Rihanna, but don't be surprised if I can't get her and uh, I get the next best thing. That's right. Kenny Loggins. Uh, I will be back next week with uh, Kevin Haskins of Bauhaus. How about that? So I've got to uh, do some research on that guy. Got to hang out in graveyards. Got to do, uh, do a little cobweb stomp to get into character. Uh, what is a cobweb stomp? I have no idea what that means. The point is I have to go into the darkness to find out what makes Kevin Haskins tick. And I'm up to the task. I'm into it. I'm ready to go into the, uh, the black heart of the human condition. I'm ready for that. I'm ready to uh, plumb the darkness, stare into the abyss, face the truth about the human soul. I'm ready for that. Wouldn't it be hilarious if all he wants to do is talk about golf? That could happen. Well, just to be safe, I'll have questions about Camus, and I'll have questions about country clubs. Just to, you know, make sure I'm armed. I'm Alex Green. This has been Stereo Embers, the podcast, and I'll see you next week right here on Bombshell Radio.